Welcome to Inclusion at Work, where we show the abilities and value of people with disabilities. I'm Larry Rothstein. Today's guest is Demi Elliott, who is Vice Provost and Interim Vice Chancellor of Academic Affairs at the University of South Florida, and who is also the Eleanor Pointer Jameson Chair of Media Ethics and Press Policy. Welcome, Demi. Thank you. It's great to meet you, and we share a mutual friend in Jess Miner, who's at the Harvard Saffer Center for Ethics. So can you tell me a little bit about how you got involved in the field of ethics and how you wound up being a professor? Yeah, that's a great question. I grew up in Washington, D.C. in the late 50s and 60s. And my dad uh, worked at the government printing office. And I credit both of those for my public activism and engagement in in ethics. I was interested in civil rights work and active in anti-war work during the Vietnam War. My dad brought home the first draft of history, starting with the Warren Commission reports uh, through the Nixon Watergate tapes. And so I thought a lot about community. I thought a lot about citizens and about government and about how every one of us has the power and and the responsibility to change the world. What I wanted to do was to help other people feel that power and responsibility. And for me, that's the discipline of ethics. So I decided that what I wanted to do with my career was to teach ethics and help other people change the world. And where were you in terms of your sight at that point? Oh, I always had lousy vision. Um, I was born um, with retinopathy of of prematurity, born early and spent too much time in oxygen as a little baby. But my parents never let my vision be an issue. Um, My focus as a child growing up was what I could do, not what I couldn't do. And um, my my vision was poor as a child. I was probably a high partial sometimes and a low partial sometimes. And I didn't become legally blind until I was in my 30s. So I was uh, fortunate enough to have enough limited vision to get through my studies and to get my career launched before I became legally blind. What does high partial and low partial mean? You know, I'm not exactly sure what the, what the numbers are uh, at this point, but what it means is that I've always had limited vision. Um, I have, from the time I can remember, my vision has been covered by blotches, some of which are solid and some of which are translucent, but I'm always kind of looking between the blotches uh, for Mm -hmm. what I can see. Um, I, my best vision has always been up close. So I was a, um, uh, I I started reading before I was three and um, have um, learned about the world mostly through what I could do close to my nose. Um, <laughs> the world uh, uh, from about six foot on is, um, it is pretty soft. 
how did that situation impact the relationship with other children in school or how teachers dealt with you or how you dealt with them and assignments and projects you had to do? Well, it wasn't until I was in third grade that a teacher realized that there was absolutely no way I could see what she was doing on the board, which led to my first pair of glasses, which was really exciting for me and for my parents until we realized that I needed a new prescription about every three months because my, I had continually worsening, worsening the stigmatisms and myopia and, and actually as a ophthalmologist uh, described it in my adult years, uh, total systems failure when it comes to um, my vision. But because my parents didn't make a big thing of it, it never occurred to me to make a big thing of it either. There were ways that I was different from um, other children, you know, other kids would play out on the playground at recess. And um, I was terrified of playground equipment because I ran into it or, you know, I just didn't see where things were and the swings hit me. And I was always happier sitting on the curb and reading a book. And so, but, you know, who knows, maybe I would have been in the same situation, even if I had had perfect vision. Well, it's funny because uh, it was the third grade where I was caught cheating on a test because I couldn't see the board. And I didn't really realize since I was so young what was going on. And the teacher said, what are you doing? I said, well, I can't see the board. <laughs> I don't know what to do. And that's when I got my pair of glasses. So, I mean, I, I relate to that. I also was fairly sickly as a child. So I spent a lot of time reading myself. So we, we shared that uh, commonality. So when you started to focus in on ethics, what concerns you? I know you're involved with journalism and trying to think through problems that the media has and the ethical dilemmas that citizens face. Well, I think that my uh, initial interest in ethics came from civil rights and um, activism during the Vietnam War. It was in that period of time that I, I felt that people, regular people could band together and create change, um, create change for the better. And so my interest in ethics is based on the belief that each of us, people who aren't leaders, people who aren't government officials, that just regular people, that we have incredible power. And with power comes responsibility to use that power to create good. And, uh, you know, obviously we can quote all sorts of philosophers to provide theoretical background for those basic statements. But what I want is for people to feel empowered and I want people to make the changes that they can in the world for the good. And it's irrelevant whether they are disabled or not disabled. It's irrelevant whether they can see or not see. Um, their ethnic background is irrelevant. What matters is, is our common humanity. And do you think that people with disabilities are perceived as part of the common humanity? I mean, they seem, at least from my observation and experiences, to be far behind other groups who are advancing. Recently, I interviewed a Harvard researcher 
And her research indicated that while other groups such as African-American and women have been making a great deal of progress, the implicit prejudice against people with disabilities had hardly moved in the last 14 years. And as a consequence, there's a very high unemployment rate, there's very high levels of violence against people with disabilities, it's hardly covered at all in the media. And, uh, you know, they seem to be confined within the media world largely to uh, what's called inspirational porn, these sort of modeling stories that end newscasts and, uh, and they're very repetitive in, in terms of certain networks. Friday night seems to be the hole on CBS where they you know, do these stories. So in terms of your own work, in terms of the disability community, is there a gap between how they're treated by able-bodied people? Oh, I'm sure there are. I'm sure that people with disabilities are treated differently than people who don't have disabilities. Uh, you know, any of us can point to any number of examples. Uh, I can't order an Uber without worrying about whether the driver is going to take me and my guide dog or whether I'm going to have to fight for that. When I travel and walk into restaurants with my guide dog, again, I need to explain, yes, this is a legitimate guide dog from Guiding Eyes for the Blind. You can see on her harness that it has the name of the guide dog school. But to have to spend my life being nice to people who are questioning my legitimacy, that gets tiring. However, outside of that, uh, one of the best things that a mentor taught me was the mantra, what other people think of me is none of my business. And I try to practice that. What that means to me is that I don't care what you think about me and who I am. I have work to do. So just get out of my way if you don't want to help. Uh, try to spend my time with groups of people who are open to a variety of experiences, whether people are disabled or not. I'm active in a group called Ski for Light, for example, which is a group of visually impaired and cross-country skiers and sit skiers. And we get together with visual and able-bodied ski guides for a quite raucous week in the Rockies somewhere every year. And it's a wonderful week of adult fun, and it doesn't really matter whether you can see or not. There's a place for you there. Uh, so I listened to a YouTube lecture you gave about your guide dog was part of a presentation for Guiding Eyes. And I noticed that you have a book coming out about the experience about working with guide dog and and the benefits of that. And the talk was six legs, two heads, two eyes, and one goal. I'd like you to just talk about the experience of, I guess you had used a cane before, and you got your first guide dog who was Alberta, and how that interaction occurred and how it changed the way you were able to interact in the world. Mm. Guide dogs changed my life, yes. Guide dog schools estimate that there are about 10,000 working guide dog teams in the U.S. at any point in time. That's just based on graduation numbers from the 12 guide dog schools in the country. 
the book that I have, um, I, I wish it were on the way out. Uh, right now, I'm still waiting for it to be signed. Uh, it's uh, under review. It's a book called The Harness Effect. And it's, um, it's how putting a guide dog harness on a dog who has been properly trained and properly bred for the work, um, how that changes both the human and the canine uh, in the interaction and in the relationship. I have far more freedom because I have a guide dog. I have not only what I can sense around me, but I have all that she can sense, uh, all that she can see and hear and feel and intuit. And so between the two of us, um, I think we're actually better than a lot of sighted people at making our way when we're navigating on foot. I did want to go over that Alberta had a tumor in her eye and, and you had to send her to live with, in Montana with your nephew. Yeah, I, I, it, it is ironic when a guide dog develops an eye tumor, uh, but it was really very sad. She was only five years old and she and I had only been working together for three years, but you kind of have inserted a spoiler here. The narrative arc of the harness effect is Alberta's and my learning to be a guide dog team together. But when she was five, uh, she had her right eye removed and now is living a wonderful retirement with my nephew and his family. Yes. Yeah. It sounded like it was a great place to retire to from your lecture. Montana is a great place to retire. Yeah. I guess I was thinking I should be retiring to Montana after hearing about it. So how does it work? With, I think you said that Alberta jumped into you when she first met you and that Koala was more distant and it, it, the relationship took time to develop because she was with uh, her trainer, I guess, and she was attached to her trainer. Uh, so it was well, a different experience. Just like all of us, different guide dogs have different personalities. When I met Alberta, it was love at first sight. I sat down on the floor, which I wasn't supposed to do, and she curled herself up inside of my cross legs and my arms curled around her and... We were just bonded from the moment that we were together. I met Koala four months after I had retired Alberta. <clears throat> and she was brought to me by a home trainer. And I remember when I met Koala thinking, oh, this is like a German shepherd in Labrador clothes. Um, she uh, was reserved. She wasn't that interested in me. Uh, she was interested in knowing what Jim, the trainer who brought her to me, was going to do. And what he did was spend about 10 minutes with us and then take off for the hotel and basically say to Koala and me, I guess you two will figure this out. And so I fed her and showed her outside, showed her around the house. And then I gave her space. And I learned that she was one of those dogs who needed to go to a quiet place and think about things sometimes. And I, I appreciate that. I'm not an introvert, but I certainly know a lot of people who are. And by being gentle with Koala and letting her make her own way, she and I have developed just an amazing relationship. Uh, she is almost eight years old. And so uh, Koala and I have been working together now for six years. 
and she's the best ever. And so what, what does a day consist of with, with you and her? Does she get you up or you get her up? Or, <laughs> <laughs> you know, you... Yeah, I have found that guide dogs, just like everybody's pet dog, has a really good time sense particularly when it's something important to them, like when their dinner is due. But Koala gets me up about five minutes before my alarm would go off. Uh And we go outside so that she can relieve herself. We come inside. She has breakfast. I have coffee. And uh, most days we walk the mile from my house to my office. And during the day, she spends her time lying under the desk with me here or running around campus. She knows all the important places on campus. I can say, let's go to the chancellor's office or we need to go to the library and let's go to the journalism department. She knows (laughs) all of that. So I don't have to say left, right, right, left. Uh, I can tell her, let's go home. And she's delighted to guide me the mile home with all the twists and turns and stopping at the curbs and walking carefully around the palm fronds. Wow. So that's great. You mentioned problems with calling an Uber or a Lyft with a guide dog. I actually heard that from uh, another professor who was in the city of Boston trying to get a cab. And actually the person she was with had to go to another block and hail down a cab and then sort of harassed the cab driver to allow him to wheel over his friend and, and get her into the cab. I think we don't realize the level of uh, prejudice or the subtle prejudice against people with a guide dog. And I know you travel on airlines. Have you encountered also issues with them? Not really. I can't say enough nice things about Delta Airlines. Oh, okay. That's always good <laughs> I have almost say. 3 million miles on that, on that airline. And uh, they have always been so good to me and my guide dogs. I've been traveling with, uh, with a guide dog for a long time. And my guide dogs are always great on airplanes and Aside from that period of time when everybody was pretending that their pet was an emotional support animal, it's gotten sane again in terms of the number of of animals on airplanes. And for the most part, the dogs that are on airplanes seem to be legitimate service dogs doing legitimate service for and with their people. And when you go to a, a new city after you've arrived into the airport with a guide dog, so the, the dog is unfamiliar with where you're supposed to go. What are the challenges for you and, and uh, Koala? That's an interesting question. And again, I have to stop and think now, is what I do so different from what sighted people do? We get off an airplane, and although I generally ask for a meet and greet, sometimes that just doesn't end up working, and I often don't have time to hang around connecting airports. So when I get off the airplane, I uh, stop at the, at the gate, and there's always a Delta person there, and I say, hi, can you please tell me where I am? Here's where I'm trying to go. And so if it's baggage claim, I just ask, which way is it to baggage claim? 
And then I tell the dog baggage claim because uh, I, I can't really explain why or how, but, but the dogs do know how to get there. I mean, if it's, if it's something like a train, okay, well, you know, that's going to be more complicated. But I, since I have a little bit of vision, I can see blurs and my dog keeps me from running into things. So if I know I'm going in the right direction and I'm in a hurry, I go as far as I think I should be going. And then I say, hmm, where are we? Can somebody please tell me where the escalator is down to the train? Can somebody please tell me how close I am to baggage claim? Can somebody please tell me what gate number I'm at? And people are are generally pretty good at answering that. When I get out of an airport, uh, well, first of all, my dog's pretty good at finding my luggage. Once we find our way to the right carousel, The uh, you know, the dog can always smell which which uh, uh, which bag has her dog food in it, oh, and uh, and I also mark it. I have a very bright luggage tag on my bag so that I can maybe have some awareness when it's coming by too. But both Alberta and Koala have been terrific at at finding their bag. And then, then we get a cab. I, I don't try to get Uber uh, or Lyft at an airport because there are too many people and it's too crazy. And I'd never know when mine arrived. So if I get in the taxi cab line, I will get a cab. I will get to the airport. And when I check in, I ask for the key card, if that's what I'm using, to be clipped in a certain way so that I know how to insert it into the door if it needs to be inserted. I ask somebody to show me to the room on the elevator. I have that person show me where the button is for the floor. When we get off the floor, the dog and I follow the person to the room. And after that, the dog can locate the room as long as I get off on the right floor. Really? Oh, wow. Well, the reason I'm asking these questions is that I don't know anything about this relationship or how it works, but it strikes me as somewhat similar to something that No Limits is proposing in terms of why companies should hire people with disabilities is that like in Artemis's case, because of his weak muscles uh, uh, from the spinal muscular atrophy, for him to go to Fenway Park, for example, involves a lot of designing and thinking and organizing, uh, all of which are skills and, you know, and literally a different perception about uh, physical space uh, and he does have to make a lot of requests of people who, who are very friendly. And uh, after a while, it was decided that they would just bring him out onto the field and wheel him to his chair then, uh, to get him down all of those steps uh, in the ancient Fenway Park. So, And the other thing that No Limits is proposing is that when people who are able-bodied and people with disabilities actually interact on a more profound level, they can create interesting things and also have a wonderful time. I think a lot of hesitancy about hiring people with disabilities is that the other party doesn't really know how to interact with them or what value they're bringing to a company. And it seems as if a guide dog experience is a really a very loving and interesting way to navigate through the world and to interact with other people to get to where you're going. It seems to me that we all have social identities, many social identities. And 
different social identities are important at different times. Sometimes it's important that I am legally blind and travel with a guide dog. A lot of the time it's completely irrelevant. When I'm doing my job at the university, well, some people have learned that if they're going to share a screen with me on a uh, Zoom meeting, that it's going to take a lot of audio description because I'm not going to be able to see what's on the screen as um, other folks do. And uh, they, you know, have learned that they can send me things in advance. I mean, you know, we can work around the little problems. One of my social identities is that I'm legally blind, but that really doesn't change. Being legally blind doesn't change who I am any more than any of my other social identities change who I am. It's all part of who right. I am. Yeah. And I think that's true of all people with disabilities. That's only one part of them. And what we're trying to explore here is the full dimensionality of each person that we interview. Let me ask you, what are the ethical challenges you see for citizens right now in our society? And where should we be heading in terms of our schools and our institutions? I'll focus on inclusion in terms of, of that question. I think that we do need to do a much better job of making environments accessible and not just physically accessible, but emotionally and intellectually accessible as well. And by that, I mean welcoming um, people with difference, appreciating that people with disabilities, for example, have a perspective on life that is different, whether it's how we view sidewalks and a series of steps or how we work with the computer. And I find that uh, institutions of higher education tend to be pretty good at helping create accessible environments for students, at least physically. Not so well with computers, but I think they're getting better. But the issue seems to be creating accessibility for employees. I know that I'm grateful to the Lighthouse for the Blind here in Pinellas County, Florida, uh, because I spend oh, about four hours a week uh, working with my Lighthouse uh, uh, technology expert on to do voiceover with programs that I would have a hard time doing without voiceover. I'm fortunate in that I have people who are working with me who are willing to help out with things that I can't see. I have some of the best equipment that I could have to, you know, to magnify or to speak text to me. But I don't think that, that this kind of accessibility is easily available for most people in most job situations. And that's a problem. Yeah, that is a problem. And that's why even people who do get jobs and companies often fall behind their colleagues because they have to find methodologies that will enable them to fully participate. And uh, often employers aren't too sensitive or even aware that they need to do these things. And it becomes 
an issue of budget. It becomes an issue of organizational inertia around what is accessibility. And unfortunately, it results in a study done by a professor from Northwestern University that indicates people with uh, disabilities with the same educational level in our 10 top cities uh, are way behind in terms of pay. You know, there's huge pay gaps between people of equal academic attainment all the way up to PhDs. You know, it's just sort of astonishing. Well, I really admire what you're doing in terms of the work around ethics. I think we're very ethically challenged society at the moment. It has saddened me greatly that we're almost at a million Americans who have died from uh, COVID and that we've spent the last two years fighting with each other and challenging uh, medical expertise and knowledge on a level that seemed astonishing to me. And as much progress has been made in some of the areas that you were so interested in, uh, such as civil rights, ethical components of perhaps the Nixon administration, uh, we've seen wild attempts to destabilize our government and, uh, uh, you know, and overturn an election. So just from my background, it's been an extraordinary few years in trying to get some sense of what an ethical life is or what our elected officials should conduct themselves or how to conduct themselves. And I don't know if you feel we're making progress or we're slipping back. Oh. (laughs) <laughs> That's a sigh. <laughs> well, it's it's a huge view. One of the things that I've taught students from the moment I stepped into an ethics class is the only way to fix the world is to start in your own backyard. And I I am concerned about the state of the world, but I also know that the only way to fix it is in increments and my my power and ability is to help other people learn to fix the world in increments. So that's where I put my time and attention. Well, I think that's an important lesson for all of us. Only so much any of us can do. And if we at least become aware of the possibility of doing some small change, in our own lives or in the lives of some other people, uh, I think we can sort of chip away at it. And so that's the intention of inclusion at work. We're sort of chipping away at this uh, monumental obstacle around just employing people with disabilities. I want to say that I think that my success has been based on a series of happy accidents and of noticing opportunities. I grew up in a working class family. I'm first generation in uh, my family to go to college and ending up at Harvard for graduate work was uh, nothing other than a series of happy accidents. And of my following the lead of other people who saw things in me before I could see them in myself. And I think that that maybe is a lesson, not just for people with disabilities, but for all of us that we can achieve, we can be better than we are, we can make a difference. Uh, and, but sometimes the understanding of how to do that 
may not be inside of us. Yes, well, I have a similar background as yours. My dad was a shoe salesman, so, you know, and winding up at Harvard, there was a series of fortunate accidents along the way. And it always does help that others see something in you that they can project down the line and say, well, you can get there. In fact, the person that got me to Harvard said, why don't you apply to Harvard? I said, me? Why would I apply to Harvard? (laughs) I went to Northeastern University, which at that time was a very working class uh, school. And I spent my first three years living at home, commuting in. So it was, you know, Harvard was another world. But yes, I mean, that's the hope of people who listen to these podcasts and the other work we're trying to do is that we can encourage them to strive to achieve and get the support of other people so they can fulfill their promise in the, in the world and uh, share their dreams with others and, and get their support. I really appreciate your words of wisdom about our what we all can potentially do and sharing with us, you know, what it's like to have a guide dog and to traverse the world and achieve as much as you've done. And, and I assume we'll continue to achieve a great deal in the next few years. So thank you so much. Thank you.